It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Joshua Kirsten. I'm one of the pastors here and privileged to preach God's Word this morning, especially with the topic at hand. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we have a, a, a shelf at the entry to the door there with many on it. We'd love for you to have that for your use. And if you literally don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home and make it yours. We're uh, joyful as a church to be journeying through this Gospel of John for the last year and a half. It's been a wonderful, marvelous study, the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And after a year and a half of walking through John's testimony about Jesus, we arrive at the cross of his death this morning. Last week's sermon was very sobering in that we looked at the judgment of Pilate to condemn the innocent Jesus to the worst of criminal beatings and order his execution. And so this morning we pick up with verse 16 of chapter 19 as we dig in today. John 19, verse 16 says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Order of Pilate governor of the region, after much drama and back and forth, crucifixion is the order for Jesus. The cross is the most widely known and popular symbol in the history of the world. When we see the cross, we are reminded of Jesus. Not just his life, but his death. His death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion is one of the most horrendous, despicable, painful, agonizing form of state-ordered death. In speaking of crucifixion, it was Cicero who declared that Roman citizens should not even think of the cross should not speak of the cross, but because it was altogether too horrifying for decent Roman citizens to contemplate or utter. Crucifixion is so horrendous that we created a word to explain it. The word is excruciating. Today we use that word excruciating in an effort to describe the most painful awful, undesirable of circumstances. Understand today, the word excruciating means, literally means, of the cross, from the cross. Perhaps most peculiar about the crucifixion of Jesus is the fact that Christians, including myself, declare it to be one of the most important historical event. this most historical important event, to be good news. We declare it good news. The best news we've ever heard. And so the question is, why? Why is it good news? The word that the Bible uses for good news is gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is our gospel. It's our good news. We believe this is the greatest news one could ever ever receive to understand why it's good news 
we have to consider what happened at the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul declared it in his New Testament letter to the Corinthians. Matt read it this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you what is of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture's. What I receive, he says, I pass on to you of first importance. The most important fact, Paul would argue, in human history. And the details of that fact. Number one, that Christ died. Jesus died. But why in and of itself is that good news? And the reality is it's not. The most innocent man to ever live was killed. That's not good news. But why he did it is what makes it good news. Christ died, and Paul says it. Why? For our sins. The gospel is the good news of the grace and the power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus Christ, perfect sinless life, his substitutional, sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the eternal wrath they deserved. They are reconciled into eternity, into an eternally secure relationship with God. Rescued from wrath, reconciled to an eternal relationship with God. A gift we did not deserve. Jesus accomplishes this on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is good news because it's for sin. Sin that condemns us to death. It's good news because Jesus' death in the place of undeserving sinners is unfathomable if you really do business with it. The beauty of God's grace, the gift that we don't deserve it, nor is he obligated to give it, should blow our minds, should propel us to a whole new life of reality. When that gospel becomes clear, it changes everything about who I am, what I do, why I live the life I live. It's not compartmentalized into religion or boxed up as a part of who I am. It it changes everything. Look at what John says next in his gospel testimony, John 19, 16 through 18. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Jesus was condemned to a criminal's cross between two criminals, but he was not a criminal. So here, the holiness of Jesus, paying for the crime committed against God or that will be committed against him. Our crime. He's paying for our crime. The details of the death of Jesus were spoken 
the Old Testament prophecies, generations before, so many, a few to taste, the Messianic prophecy found in Psalm 22. Read that psalm later. Psalm 22 is filled with amazing detail of the death of Jesus. Verse 16 says, They pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah declared in Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered with transgressors, crucified, pierced, hands and feet, among transgressors, criminals. What we have to understand is that the greatest weight and pain that Jesus would bear is not the physical condition or pain. While what he went through, as we tasted last week in his beatings and thorns being pressed to his skull and a soft robe being put over an open wounded body and then ripped back from him, and all that he went through on the cross, while almost infathomable beyond comprehension, what Jesus sweated blood about in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he called out to the Father to say, if it's your will, remove this cup from me, was not the physical condemnation, but the atonement of all our sin. The wrath due that sin. Atonement is what was made for us at the cross of Jesus. The doctrine of atonement begins its story in the Old Testament by the order of God given in Leviticus. Particularly, we see it begin to unfold in chapters 16 and 17 in what's called the Day of Atonement. The problem was that God's wrath rested on sinful people. and The Bible mentions wrath, the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God, more than 600 times. God's wrath is right. He is holy, and sin deserves his wrath. From the first page to the last of the Bible, it's emphatically, consistently, repeatedly declared that all are sinners and deserve God's perfect and righteous wrath. So we people are desperate for atonement so that we can have a restored and right relationship with the Holy God. On that day, the high priest, representing all the people in the Old Covenant, would bring two goats. One goat would be slaughtered. The blood would be shed. The animal would die. As it says later in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We earn a wage. We earn death because of our sin. So the animal dies as a substitute in the place of the sinful people at the hands of the high priest. The truth about Jesus that is good news to all of us who believe and why this doctrine of atonement is so important is because our sin separates us from the holy God. And when you are given eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the gospel, when the, the chains of the slavery of your sin, as the scriptures speak about who we are before Christ, are unshackled, we're given eyes to see and heart to understand that our worst problem in this life 
is sin, is our separation from God because of our sin. That you're, if, if you're struggling in this life, your worst problem is not aggressive cancer. It's not great poverty. It's not adultery. It's not sickness. It's not disobedient children. It's not the loss of a career or job. It's not the loss of the use of your limbs or your eyes. Your worst problem in this life is separation from the holy God because of sin. And so I just ask you, get that that's your biggest problem in this life. Because when you downplay sin, you downplay the need and the greatness of the grace of a Savior. We must not compartmentalize these things to religion. How many people would you call and tell if you found out my body is filled with cancer, I will die in days or weeks in tears. I'm sorry, I'm calling to say goodbye. I have a great problem. My, my spouse has left me for another person, completely abandoned our family, tears, broken. It's a great problem. And yet, it does not compare to the reality of our condition in sin as our greatest problem. Even on this side of the cross, on this side of salvation, do you still consider what Jesus did to answer that problem an amazing reality? I pray you do. I pray it's a motivation for why you worship every week, why you worship every day, why you commit your lives to Jesus. People will lose sleep over their looks changing, their health changing, a job changing, family changes, but all that's temporary. Your separation from God because of sin is an eternal problem. How I pray we see the depth of our sin, separation it brings us from the joy and the satisfaction that it is to be reconciled to God. We were separated from God and the scriptures were clear that the means of the Old Testament atonement were insufficient. It was a symbol pointing forward for, as it says in Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There is only one solution to our problem. Our sin problem, our separation from God problem. The cross of Jesus Christ. The atonement of the spotless lamb who is God in flesh. The only sacrifice worthy to pay for all our sin, past, present, and future. Romans 3.25, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. In his blood, atonement was made. Theologians call this penal substitution, penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid the penalty, substituted himself in our place to atone for our sins, to give us a right relationship with God, satisfy the wrath of God. He suffered. He died physically. He is the substitute in our place. He died what we deserve. He took on what we deserve, but bore our penalty as we've just sung.
The wages of sin is death. He took that death on for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, did nothing good, nothing God-honoring, enemies of his in every way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, perfect in every way, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we I might have the righteousness of God. Praise be to God. Let's look at what happens next. John 19, 19-22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate's aim in this is to elevate himself. He's been conflicted, as we've studied in the last few weeks, in his sin, He longs to elevate himself over Jesus. His questioning Jesus about being king of the Jews, about Jesus' kingdom, was all posturing and pride in Pilate. Pilate has already stood over Jesus, as we looked at last week, in front of the crowds and declared him the king of the Jews, not as a compliment, but in a form of mockery in his lowly state, his perceived lack of ability to overcome, to rule and to reign. Another attempt of sinful flesh of Pilate to prop Jesus up as a failed king. To hold up his title of king above his bodily demise is to surely highlight his failure and ultimately his defeat. Pilate is no different than any of us in that we do this too, don't we? Often prop up ourselves in the midst of others to highlight the demise or the stumble of another that people would look down on them and then not on us. We in our flesh feel superior in this. We actually internally would revel and dance in the fact that it's not us that's failed, but another. Make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Church, hear this warning. This is purely, that that action, that attitude, is purely the working of the flesh. This is our pride, it's our sin that causes us to mock and to point out the failures of another. Instead, let us shed the need to speak or even think of such criticism, not only for the sake of those who hear us, but for the sakes of our own soul. For the sake of, of not sinfully feeling feeding my, my, my own fleshly pride. I wouldn't feed that monster. Let us shed thoughts like this and instead follow our master's teaching and example to go low. To go low and get low for others who don't deserve to be served, to be loved. 
no matter how high-ranking or accomplished we are, that we would go low. For Jesus said himself, the last will be first in his kingdom, and the first will be last. Before we move on, note the irony of the fact that even though Pilate had sinful intentions for the sign of mockery, it heralds the fact that Jesus is indeed king. The announcement that Jesus was king happened at the incarnation. We heard it in his infancy as wise men herald him as king in Matthew 2.2. 2. We heard it chanted and shouted in the triumphal entry to Passion Week as the multitudes cried out, Blessed is the king of Israel, John 12, 13. Pilate himself bore witness to his kingdom, John 18. Just a few, just to name a few. Now the announcement that Jesus is king hangs above his head as he fights the battle of all battles to win back his kingdom people once and for all. Amen? See our king. It brings to mind another text of old in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what man meant for evil, God uses for good to bring it about that many should live. Look at the next part of our passage, John 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided many garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 23 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. What that means is he's now been fixed to the wood. It fixed his body to a tree by driving spikes through his wrist and his feet. I, imagine the horror of walking into your backyard and seeing a beloved pet nailed to the fence or to a tree. This is not a pet. This is God in flesh. This is a grown man being mounted to a wooden post with long spikes through the most sensitive nerve centers of the body. Once affixed to the wood, they would stand the cross up and drop it in its hole. In that instant, the body would settle to the earth, placing enormous amount of pressure on the lacerated tendons and nerves surrounding the rusty spikes. 
And all that is left is to now suffer slowly. Suffer with every breath taken. The cross' worst penalty is on the lungs and on the heart. The way the body hung placed pressure on the chest so that in hanging there, one would need to literally lift to gather air. This long and tedious process would eventually wear down, ultimately suffocate the person hanging there. Death by crucifixion was often very slow, agonizing, horrifying, as asphyxiation in a public manner took place. This is done openly in public. The death would sometimes take hours, maybe even days. Literally, the body would wilt in the sun. The criminals would be mocked at and spat upon. Other ways for prideful, sinful men to feel a little better about their own standing in life, to throw and to, to mock and to spit at the propped up bodies of criminals. John says specifically, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts. And a seamless woven tunic was gambled for to see who won it as their prize. They have Jesus' clothes in their possession as he's up on the cross because he's stripped naked before nailing him there. It's part of the humiliation of the cross. It's another reason why pictures, modern-day pictures or portrayals of Jesus all fall very short. For none of them show what's really happening, nor would it be appropriate to show his true form. As we sang earlier, what is true as we considered the beatings he endured last week's sermon, his face disfigured, his body so opened up in gushing blood, and naked, this reserved for the worst of criminals, the most holy and innocent and glorious man to ever live, truly laid bare for all to see. See that there's no comfort, there's no shield, there's no hiding from the full penalty to be paid. And that he's doing that for for us, for his people. And again, we must ask, why? Why? He hung there naked and ashamed so that we could be clothed in righteousness and be unashamed. Amen? What was Adam and Eve's reality the moment they sinned? The moment sin entered. They were ashamed. They were judgmental of one another and of themselves. Sin, lust, jealousy, envy, all born. So God provided the skins of the animal to serve as a form of covering but just not the answer. Why? Because their soul, their spirit was still full of shame and guilt, pride. God would provide another cover for his people. 
but what could reach the depths of our sin and shame and give us a new identity, give us peace with God, the spotless lamb would have to be slain. He would take on all of our shame and sin. He would become naked and exposed so that we could be clothed in righteousness and glory. The spotless lamb. His robe taken off and gambled for so that he could put on us the robe of righteousness. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Remember Jesus' story that he told about a prodigal son who in his flesh longed for the things of the world and took early his inheritance from his father and spent it on wild living and discovering no true satisfaction in those things, he returned with nothing but mud stains from the pigs. And what does the gracious father do for his son in Jesus' parable? He puts on him his best robe and brings him into his house for celebration. Amen? Amen. This is what he's doing for his people on the cross, for his prodigal people. This is what he did for you who trust your life to him and only him. John says this was to fulfill Scripture, that they divided garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. This is a quote from Psalm 22 again, passages I spoke of earlier, verse 17 and 18. The fuller passage says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Amazing detail. Spoken by prophecy hundreds of years, generations before. Why can he count his bones? Why can he stare over them? Because he can see them. Because his flesh has been torn from his body. Because he's naked. It's just yet another reminder that this has been God's plan from the beginning. To send his only son to be the only sacrifice that could set us free. Ephesians chapter 1, 7-10, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. All the prophecy of the generations of past make one thing utterly clear, that the one who hung on the cross was indeed the promised Messiah. 
the Savior of the world. Will you pray for Jews who deny Jesus as Messiah? Do you realize that they're lost and dead in sin without Jesus? For anyone who would claim any kind of reconciliation to God outside of the atonement of the blood of Jesus is damned. For Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Pastor, that sounds really exclusive. Yeah. The gospel is extremely exclusive. Our sinful era and man-made way of thinking of there's, there's multiple ways to get to God are lies. The gospel of Jesus is yet by one way, Jesus Christ alone, that you would die to yourself and live and trust him alone. Look at verse 24 through 27. John 19, 24 through 27. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What, what a blessed group this is, first and foremost. In the midst of a lot of, of evil and sin and pride, I've always considered this special view that Jesus had of his kingdom people as a really unique thing from his elevated position of misery. To see his sheep, to see his family. As he's paying for their adoption and redemption, it must have been a sweet moment in the midst of utter misery. We've not heard much of Jesus' mother since his birth and Jesus' younger years, but her presence here makes the scene all the more sobering, does it not? I'm always very struck at the fact that Jesus' mother is standing there witnessing her boy treated and slain in such a way. In addition to Mary, we're we're told her sister's there by marriage, probably. Mary Magdalene's there. She was the one, there's many Marys, She was the one cured of evil spirits and known as a faithful follower of Jesus. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel, the gospel of John, not to be confused with John the Baptist or others. John's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. They were very close, very close. Part of the inner three, closest to to Jesus with James and Peter. He's a close, close friend and a faithful disciple. And Jesus says to Mary, his mother, woman, behold your son. Not speaking of himself, but pointing to John. In boyhood, Jesus honored 
his parents. We see testimony of that in Luke chapter 2. And, and here he still does at the cross. As Jesus bears all of our due guilt and wrath. He's ministering. He's shepherding his flock. So he's preparing to lead the world. His, he first provides a family for his widowed mother. This is the second time he addresses Mary as woman. The first being at the wedding of Cana, if you remember, in John chapter 2, verse 4. It is important to note that both of these references are found in John's gospel. And John's priority in his gospel is the deity of Jesus and a little less about the horizontal relationship. And so the emphasis of these things is about Jesus as God. And so when the title woman is used, it's not to be harsh nor rude, but more focused on the change that's about to take place in their relationship. Why? Because God's sovereign design for Mary as the mother of Jesus has now run its course. And in blood-bought redemption Jesus that Jesus would provide, Mary would now become an adopted sister and daughter of the living God. Consider that reality for all of us, whether it be your spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. In God's eternal kingdom, I am no longer your pastor. Jennifer would no longer be my wife. For those roles serve God's purposes in this life only. In his kingdom, there will be only adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. For the enemies of God will be in another place. That's why if you have a, an unsaved spouse or son or daughter or close friend, the deepest longing of your hearts is to know them as brother or sister, not in the temporary role that you know them in. Adopted by the blood of Jesus, a part of his eternal family. See family coming into form here in the most amazing way. This precious moment for Jesus is to point his beloved friends and family together to say, be family to each other now. That just as we're called to love the widows in our midst and care for each other as family, truly family, not just religious church people, but family, blood-bought family. Can I say it's one of the great joys of what God's doing in our church? And then uh, with all your nods, you, you very much agree with me. One of the high joys of what God's doing in this church family in this last season is that many, many, many of you are feeling more and more like true family. Some of you have shared with me that I, I feel like this family is truly a picture of family like I've never known, even in my own family. And, and for some of you to say that is pretty fabulous because, and pretty powerful because you have actually a very great relationship with your own family. But praise God for the union he is forming in us as blood-bought, adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? John would take her home 
and care for her the rest of her days. Look at verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing all, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The earlier offering of another kind of wine was offered, given to kind of help numb the pain. He didn't, he didn't drink that one. Old theologian, 100-year-old theologian, A.W. Pink says it well. The Lord Jesus was not a divine man. Nor a humanized God. He was the God-man. Forever God, and now forever man. When the eternal word became incarnate, he did not cease to be God, nor did he lay aside any of his divine attributes. But he did become flesh, being made in all things like unto his brethren. In this way, in his flesh, he increased in wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52. He wearied in the body, John 4.6. He was hungered, Matthew 4.2. He slept, Mark 4.38. He marveled, Mark 6.6. He wept, John 11.35. He prayed, Mark 1.35. He rejoiced, Luke 10.21. He groaned, John 11.33. And here, he thirsted. God does not thirst. And we shall not thirst in glory. But Christ did thirst as man in the depths of his humiliation. Once again, Jesus fulfills the prophecy spoken of again in Psalm 22. Consider this description. Verse 14 and 15, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is all dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. Thirsty just reading that. Can you imagine? What Jesus is going through. He's dying. He's exhausted. He's given us all his flesh, literally. He's thirsty. You see the good news in what Jesus is doing for us here. Jesus died of thirst as he took on our sin so that we could have the living water of his righteousness. 
Jesus himself said to the woman at the well in John 4.14, whoever drinks of the the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus experienced the ultimate spiritual thirst and died in torment so that we could have the cool and lasting water of eternal life with God. This is the good news because it's, it's just like the outcast woman at the well. No matter your moral background, no matter your social status, no matter your gender, no matter your religious history, the, the sinful baggage you carry, your lifelong addictions, Jesus alone quenches the thirst of the soul. And just as he said to her, that woman at the well that day, I say to you, the hour has come. Drink. Be quenched. Be reconciled to God. Jesus died of thirst in our place so that we could have a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And in verse 30, when Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Bible declares that it was spoken in a loud voice. He cried out, it is finished. His work is done. Our substitute died in our place, made atonement for our sins. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and was cursed in our place. And in that moment, in that moment, his work was done. Our substitute died in our place. Jesus made perfect with final God-satisfying atonement for our sins. Consider Romans 5, 6-11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation amen christ jesus died for us for sinners and it was finished right there some have wrongly said or been told that after jesus died he went to hell for three days and suffered for us there if that's true that means he's a liar when he declared it was finished 
that's so biblically wrong for the one who rules over Satan is God, is Jesus himself. So Jesus is not put under the grip to be tormented by Satan and his demons for three days. It's just bad artistry and terrible doctrine. It was finished. It was done. What did he say to the thief who hung beside him, as we hear in the other testimonies of the other Gospels? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not in hell. You'll be with me in paradise. That's because Jesus went to paradise to see all those who of faith had died before him. What a, what a reunion that must have been. And what a moment it will be when we who are truly saved by faith die. Why? Because our physical death is not our end. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Isaiah 53 was saying it earlier. 1 Peter 2.24-25 Peter is clear, clearly alluding to Isaiah 53. As he declares, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. By his death, Jesus paid the price for our sins in order that one day when he returns to glory, returns us to glory, his people, he may wholly do away with all of our sickness, with all of the suffering that we still face in this life. For Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the living hope that only those who are saved in Jesus have. If you truly don't know Him, if you truly don't live for Him, if you still are the Lord of your own life, I love you enough to say, repent of your sin and trust your life to Jesus. For whatever you've conjured up outside of that, believed about your religious setting outside of that, is not enough. Repent and trust in Jesus alone for new life, for everlasting life, and live with God for God. Praise God, it was finished. Praise God for Jesus' death on the cross 
in our place. Let's pray. Father God, we, we rejoice greatly in, the, in this time, in this, in this place, in this, in this text you've given us, Lord, to consider the death of the perfect Lamb of God. Consider the love you showed us, the grace that you gave when we didn't deserve it, As you know, I've been praying that this testimony of what happened that many of us are very familiar with, that it would not wash over us. It would not just be hearing it again, but it would move us. It would, it would unsettle us unto a real life of worship, of devotion to you. Real changes and transformation real bold testimony to others about what you've done. Faith in the midst of suffering, joy in Christ alone in the midst of great loss. For as Paul said clearly, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What you've done is amazing. This this mystery now made known changes everything and so we worship you for those with questions and true angst about these things that they would lean in enough to us to walk with them to journey with them pray with them show them the word you would do a marvelous work in their life what a joy it is to be on this road together we we acknowledge you in this song and and with our lives as we leave this place in jesus name we pray amen